Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible every year and we talk about what we've learned along the way. Yeah, we're not going to do that the whole time. Uh, if you would like to follow along with us, you can download the Version Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, we are on day 22. Welcome to 22 days into the reading plan so far. Hopefully you're able to keep up with this. If not, that's why we give you the day that we are on so that way you can catch up or pick up the episode a little bit later. Uh, or maybe it's now June and you're trying to jump in the reading plan for the first time. Anyways, we give you the day for that reason only. Uh, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're glad you're a part of our community. Uh, one of the things we like to do week over week as much as there is time uh, we love to answer questions that may come from and may come from you, our dear listeners. And so there's three ways to send us those questions. The first is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a let's or a Bible podcast question or just a podcast question. Or you can direct message us via Facebook or Instagram. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, as we already said, on on the Facebook uh, platform. I was trying to figure out what to say there. Oh, you know. And then on Instagram, our handle is the Grove CH. Uh, you can direct, direct message us there, and we will get those questions as well. All right. Well, this week we are continuing the book of Job. Um, I wanted to address, this is a question we got in. It was just kind of a quick one, but I didn't know if we're going to we're gonna have time to do it this week, but I wanted to fit it in. Uh, someone asked about, in Job chapter 1, it talks about, and then there was an assembly between the sons of God. And then basically Ooh, what it's does like, that mean? yeah, exactly. Like, wait, what? Just got to have more than one son. What's this about? Uh, sons of God is a euphemism usually for angels, sometimes demons. I be- well, I should, don't quote me on the demons thing. I think that's too late. Already did. Yeah. I think in Genesis, it refers to the, the, the Nephilim thing, but I could be wrong on that. Um, either way, it's spiritual beings. And then the Hebrew idiom of sons of doesn't necessarily always mean biological sons, it can also mean someone who's under the authority of someone else. So when it's saying the sons of God are gathered, it's basically the spiritual beings who are under the authority of God. So that's the idea there. Um, Anyway, with that being said, we are continuing on through Job. We are in the middle of our- Massive chunk of Job. Oh yeah. We're in the middle of our cycle of the friend's speeches here. Uh, Today is going to kick off, well, yeah, basically kick off the second and third cycles. Uh, We're going to also talk about Job's reply to Zophar which is the end of the first cycle. And we're going to power through all of that. And then we're going to get through, I think we're going to get to, yeah, we're going to get through the first two speeches of Elihu today. So we're doing a lot lot of Job. Um, There's a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So it's going to be about a three hour episode. uh, So I hope you're in a very long car ride. Hope you're ready to roll. I'm just kidding. Okay. So in chapters 12 through 14, Job responds to Zophar and he matches his energy pretty well. So remember, uh, Zophar tells Job, his whole thing is like, you deserve even worse than what's been happening. And Job retorts with a, And here's the thing. If there's one thing I love about the book of Job, um, it's the deep issues that it tackles. But if there's a second thing that I love about the book of Job, it is just the sarcasm that permeates most of the book. It's great. And as someone who's uh, one of my love languages is sarcasm, it's fantastic. Uh, So Job starts off with, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you, but I have understanding as well as you and I am not inferior to you. So basically he's like- Take that. He's basically like, so Zophar's like, you deserve even worse. And Job is like, yeah, listen, I know that you are just the wisest guy who ever lived and that when you die, Zophar, all the wisdom of the ancients will pass away with you. But, you know, maybe I know something too. That's basically what Job is doing here. So good good on you, Job. I don't, I don't take any gruff from Zophar. That guy's, that guy's a clown. So. a man after your own heart. 
Job is, yeah. And you know what? The Lord, eventually, when he comes back, he's got a lot of sarcasm as well, which is just great. Take but that. we're not going to cover that in this episode. My dad always told me when I was younger that I needed to work on my sarcasm because I would have a hard time keeping friends with how sarcastic I was. And was he right about that? Um, yes. But was does God also use a lot of sarcasm? At least in the book of Job, he absolutely does. But we'll get to that next week. You're like, Dad, look at me now. Look I'm at still, me I'm now. Still friends. <laughs> Uh, what follows is a speech that is really all about the sovereignty of Yahweh uh, for good or for ill, which I think is a really important jo- a point that Job makes. Uh, Job makes it clear that God has done this to him and that he is over all of creation. But by, by he, I mean, and that God is over all of creation. Um, eventually, this culminates in one of the most famous verses in the book of Job. And this is Job 13 verses 15 through 16. Uh, Though he slay me. I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Uh, so really interesting thing about this verse. It can be translated as either the very famous, you know, though he slay me, yet will I serve him, or yet will I hope in him. Um, it can also be translated as behold, he slays me, I have no hope. And if you're at home thinking to yourself, that's a very wide a range of translations. It absolutely is. That completely changes the meaning here. Um, But the important thing I think to keep in mind is that both of these meanings actually get at the central theme of what Job's argument is here. So again, Job's central theme in in this speech is that Yahweh is in complete control and whether those are the good things that are happening or the bad things that are happening, Yahweh is in control. So the one way when he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, what's he saying there? He's saying that even though God is against me, I am going to hope that he will turn this around for me. And then the other way where it says, behold, he slays me, I have no hope. It's the same thing. It's just the reverse of the coin where he says, God is against me. Therefore, I have no hope because there's nothing I can appeal to outside of God. So both of those both of those verses or both of those translations of this sentence get at the same idea that it is fully in the hands of God, mm-hmm. whether or not Job will uh, receive, I don't want to say justice because as we'll get to the end of the book, it's a little bit up in the air, but whether or not, <laughs> uh, whether or not Job receives answers, I guess is the way that we can put that. Um, so yeah, basically that could be translated widely, but it's, I don't think it's as big of a thing as we can make it out to be, because again, it's a, it's a different side of the coin, but they're both looking at the same thing the same way. Uh, in chapter 15, Eliphaz kicks off the second cycle of speeches and his second speech by comparing Job to the dry and unfruitful east wind, um, which I put in uh, parentheses, a little ironic for Eliphaz to be calling Job useless, but you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens here. Um, and this is one of those things where, again, I think it's fun to, uh, when you read through the poetry and you have a metaphor that sounds off, like, okay, east wind, what is that about? Well, think about the type of society that would use that metaphor. So the East Wind, what is what it's famous for in uh, ancient Near East literature, is it's the wind that comes out from the desert. Like if you look at uh, basically a map of Mesopotamia, you have the Fertile Crescent we always talk about that's kind of up to the north, and then you have the land of Canaan and all of those nations up, off to the west, and then you have this massive desert. And so the winds that are coming in from the east – those are winds that are blowing in from the desert. So they're not carrying the nutrients of the ocean. They're not carrying the nutrients of like the north of the Fertile Crescent or the mountains. They're carrying no nutrients because it's the middle of the desert. And so when the wind would blow uh, from the east, the people thought of it as being dry and unhelpful. And so that helps you kind of, again, it helps put yourself into the shoes of the people that you're reading about because they're a agrarian society. This is a society of farmers. Again, Job's wealth 
when it says that he's incredibly wealthy, it's not talking about like he's Scrooge McDuck and he has like a vault of gold that he goes that swimming, he swimming in. in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's a great, great show. Uh, but it's talking about how he has livestock and he has uh, basically cattle and farm and all that different stuff. Uh, it's an agrarian society. And of course, the East Wind would be a perfect metaphor to describe what Eliphaz thinks Job is. Um, I would argue that Eliphaz here is the East Wind because he's just, you know, a little bit of a windbag and he's not very helpful. Uh the speech also starts off one of the major strategies of the friends, and we'll see this go through all of the second cycle. Um, they will describe a wicked man and kind of the the way it goes is basically like, Job, let me tell you um, – this is my paraphrase, by the way. But Job, let me tell you about the wicked man. Tell me. You know, the wicked, the wicked man, the man who has wronged the Lord, uh, as we all know, the wicked man will lose all of his possessions and his family will die and he'll be left destitute and sickly. Now, Job, does that sound like anyone that you know? It's basically like huh. their argument. They just keep saying like the wicked over and over again. Um, it's it's annoying, but it's creative at least because like I think sometimes the cycles can feel very similar. So in the second cycle, we get that we get this picture, um, and yeah, it's 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 lame. It's also exceptionally cruel because basically like Eliphaz is again they're all saying that Job must be wicked because this is the only reason well, that all this stuff would, yeah all this stuff would happen. But then they're also digging back up like the pain that he's going through. They're just like yeah, all this stuff happens to the wicked. Joe, you, have you experienced any pain like that, Joe? Huh. Has have you been anything through anything similar? I so, wonder why. Yeah, just a real jerk. Uh, chapter sixteen gives us some much needed catharsis from Job when he declares that all of his friends have been miserable comforters, and this is another famous line where he says, "Miserable comforters are all of you." Um, and understandably, the rest of his speech devolves into a lament over the way that God has treated him. And so, and I say understandably not because it's necessarily right, because we'll get to Job. Next week, we'll talk about Job does have to repent of some of the things that he says in these chapters, but um, it's understandable in the fact that Job is just so frustrated with the fact that his friends have been basically the east wind, I guess, to coin – or not to coin, but to use Eliphaz's analogy there. They've been unhelpful at best is kind of their whole thing. And so when he's looking to his friends for comfort and they're not giving him any, it just devolves into the absolute – yeah, into the absolute worst. And just listen to the way that Job describes some of his circumstances. In chapter 16, starting in verse 6, Job says, If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much it leaves me. Surely now God has worn me out and has made me desolate and has made desolate all of my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His arches surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours my gall out on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. I have laid my strength to dust. My face is red with weeping and my eyelids deep in, and my eyelids on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. 
I mean, it's just really heavy. Like if you listen to it's it, he, yeah, he's talking about God as it, basically like the, the picture being painted here is that he's just continuously being attacked. It's almost like when you see a fight that should be over and the person is knocked out and they're beaten and bloody and the person is still on top of them swinging away because the ref hasn't gotten into it yet. Um, that's kind of like the picture here. And again, like his archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. It's just... It's heartbreaking. And again, we get this picture of we're watching, we're not watching, we're reading about Job's suffering firsthand in an incredible way. And it's it's just really painful to do. But I also love that the Bible as a whole, but also the book of Job, it doesn't spare those details, right? Yeah. It's, it's, talk, it's not, this isn't some fake. Um, it's very raw. Yeah, exactly. This isn't I not to like I guess not to besmirch most Christian movies, but you know what I mean? I feel like most most <laughs> modern Christian movies when they talk about suffering, oh, you're it's such a jerk. I am. Uh but like when they talk about suffering, it it doesn't really feel real. It's just like, oh, you know, what like, about the passion of the Christ, huh? How about them apples? Hey, that that that's fair. That's I'm a good kidding. point. Uh but I, I love that the Bible itself is not some sanitized version of like, yes. hey, everything's going to be okay there, bud. Like no, it's really showing the depths of the despair that Job is in. Yep. Uh, chapter 18 gives us Bildad's second speech, which is the most interesting and yet I would say the most wicked of the speeches. Uh, he continues with the theme of describing the fate of the wicked man, only instead of pointing to Job's loss, he now points to Job's fear. And so Eliphaz is like, hey, Job, the wicked man lost everything. And what? look at that. You've lost everything. And so the second one is Job has talked about in a few of his speeches that he – is constantly afraid. Like he cannot sleep at night because he's always wondering, well, what's next? What's going to come after me now? And as again, because this is a massive trauma that Job has undergone, of yeah. course, that is the way that he feels. And so what does Bildad do? He goes, oh, you, you know, Job, you know who else is always looking over their shoulder, waiting for someone to uh, come get them? The the wicked, Job, that's crazy. And you, you just said that you're very afraid. It, yeah, it's just, oh my gosh, the friends. Again, like I said last week, it's so hard to remember that they are good friends and they're not being good friends in this moment. But so I guess it's, I, I should re to rephrase that. It's so hard to remember that they have good intentions um, because I think they just, but do they like, there's a point, like, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Like, sure. Even as I was reading, like I, I two things I had to remind myself of what they're saying is not something I should repeat to any of my friends going through hardship. Yes. <laughs> um, but two, like there's a point where we discussed this, I think at the end of the podcast last week, we talked about like it turns dark or it turns worse. Like at what point, like their intentions at this point, I don't feel like are good. This is just me. Like as I'm reading mm -hmm. so far as I'm, I'm reading these guys, it does not, I'm sorry, it does not build that. It does not feel like, oh, I have good intentions now. It almost feels like I'm angry that you're not repenting and therefore now I'm just targeting and attacking. That's what it feels like. That's not good intentions in my opinion. So yeah, I think you've done a whole lot more research in it, but this is like the tension I was feeling as I was reading through it. I think, and again, this is very, this is very open-handed, right? So the, yeah, the way absolutely. that the way that I read it is, I think it's almost an arguable that they have good intentions at the start because again, they go um, just the fact that they go to Job. Well, and they sit there part in silence. Exactly, they yes. sit they sit with him for a week, and then the way Eliphaz kicks off is very. It's not immediately the vitriolic speeches that we get to know as the dialogues go. He starts off very uh, deferential to Job, and then it just gets worse and worse from there. The way that I read it is that the three friends think that they need to show Job some tough love, and that when it doesn't take that they think the 
the answer is to get even tougher with the love. And so the way I would phrase it, because you said something about this is not something I should ever repeat to any of my friends going through suffering. The one exception to that is not most, a lot of their advice is actually correct if you have a friend who is going through suffering specifically because of sin in their life, if that makes sense. And and, and particularly unrepentant sin. And so if you have a friend who like, you know, like their life has just fallen apart because they've, you know, they've given their life over to sin. um, The advice to say like, hey, turn back to the Lord, like, like obey his commands, like, let's talk through this together. And again, you do it with love in, in your tone. It's not like just going straight after. And that's why I say like, sometimes the friends devolve into that. Um, But it is the correct advice. The issue is that they misapply that advice to Job because that's not the advice that Job needs, but they refuse to believe that. And so I think what's happening is by the time we get to the third cycle, especially, which is where um, Eliphaz in particular, because he's really the only one who speaks in the third cycle, Bildad has like a little Psalm 117 sized deal and so far doesn't speak at all. Um, By the time we get into that, you can tell that they want to win the argument, that they want to prove Job wrong. But then as we'll get to (laughs) the end of Eliphaz's speech in the third cycle is very interesting, but we'll, sorry, that's, that's a tease for like, I don't know, 10 minutes from now, but, but I, but I say all that to say, like, I, I would agree with you that at the very beginning, their intentions were good. They wanted to see their their friend restored. They wanted like they, and they came at it from a, a perspective of this is what we've seen happen and play out. So I, I agree with you too mm-hmm. to that extent. But there's a dark shift yes. that happens, and it's and it's not like gradual. It's drastic uh, that happens in the second cycle. And the fact that Zophar doesn't speak in the third cycle, that build that has a short little ditty in the, in the third cycle. Like that, that just to me is like, I don't know if like their intentions at this point are good. I feel like they already want to win the argument and they want Job to admit fault and sin and failure um, and repent from that. And then, so I, th- that's where I wrestle. Like as yeah. I'm reading, like, I just like, man, I don't, uh, these guys are just jerks and evil and they did, they need Jesus. Like, uh, so that's where I wrestle with it, to be honest with you. Well, let's re- let's revisit this. Let's put a pin and let's revisit this after we talk about the third cycle. Cause I think there's like, there's really good points on both sides of that. Um, but getting getting back to Bildad's second speech here, um, again, his point is that Job is looking over his shoulder, waiting for the next thing to come. And that's exactly what the wicked man do, what the wicked man does. Uh, there's two things that come to my mind with this. Number one is like Macbeth, the play by Shakespeare, right? It's about a man who does an incredibly wicked thing, or him and his wife conspire to kill the king. And then he becomes king of Scotland, but he spends the whole rest of his play haunted by what has happened, him and his wife both. And so there's a famous scene where Macbeth is in a banquet and he sees the ghost of a man that he had murdered and he he starts shouting at it in front of all the guests and the guests are like, what is going on right now? Like, it's just it, because he's racked with guilt. Um, his wife, the, the famous line, and I love this scene where she starts seeing blood on her hands and she starts trying to scrub the blood off of her hands and no matter what she does, it, it's still there and she's kind of just getting after it. That's kind of the way that Bildad sees uh, Job here. The other thing I thought was, I should have written it down because the poem is really cool, but it's uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And it's like when, after the albatross dies and he sees like the ghost ship and he's talking about like the the dread of having something right behind him. And now like it's it, the, the picture is painted. I should have written it down. It's such a good section, but basically the picture is painted of someone who's walking in fear, fear and dread, knowing that close behind something's stalking doth tread. So it's a good time. I butchered it. Coleridge is awesome. All right. Job, Job 19. Uh, 
It gives us possibly the greatest moment of triumph of Job, in the, especially in the cycles of the friends speaking. Um, he begins by expressing his exasperation with his friends and even admitting that, of course, he's not perfect, which I think is an important thing to note because Job's claim is never, I have lived a perfect, sinless life. Yeah. Um, his claim is that he is blameless and upright, which, again, that is the way God describes him. So there's you have to kind of be able to differentiate differentiate between the two there. Um and yeah, it's basically this idea that he hasn't done something to bring this tragedy upon himself. Um, he once again laments his situation. However, he ends it on this note. And so this is where, again, we get this really famous verse from Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom shall I see for myself? And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And so this section is really talking about it's it's funny because I feel like there's a couple sections of Job where they get they get really close to the gospel and obviously they don't have it right like they, this is pre-Christ they they don't have this in mind um, and even the author just would not have this in mind even if it's at a much later date than yeah. the story of Job takes place but like yep your redeemer does live Job and we'll and you'll we'll get we on the other side of Christ know a lot more about that um, but I love this idea that essentially what Job is getting at here is that. Even if he dies without receiving any vindication, he knows that he can commit this. He wants it to be written on the rock because one day there will be a redeemer and he will vindicate Job. And so, again, Job is looking forward to not realizing he's kind of looking forward to Christ here. Um, but even in the moment, what does he have? To, what does he have faith in? He has faith that God will make this right somehow. Yeah. So cool, cool beans there. Which is a big deal. Yep. Uh, chapter 20 gives us Zophar's final speech, which is a very simplistic argument that the wicked are always punished and the righteous are always rewarded on this side of eternity. Um, basically, it's kind of like karma is what he's arguing yeah. for, um, except it's a little bit different just because he's arguing specifically that, you know, God, the, the one true God always dishes this out. Um, but I love chapter 21 because it's Job's just complete destruction of Zophar's argument. And it basically amounts to like, hey, like, go take a look outside, moron. <laughs> like, what are you talking like? Because so far, it's literally like, oh, every, you, we all know that all of the wicked, it all comes back to get them. And all of the righteous are always rewarded. And Job is just like, I mean, just walk around town, dude. Like, obviously, that's not true. Like, and we can see that today, right? Like, there's people who um, are found out, like, in their lifetimes. And, like, that happens. There's other people who go to the grave. And maybe it comes out after they've died. Some of the terrible things are done. They've done, and there's people who we have no idea <laughs> that we will not yeah. know on this side of eternity. Like that, that is just not the way that the world works. Um, God does not do, does not give out. God does not dispense justice and and punishment exactly the way that we would think it should be dis dispensed on this side of eternity. And on the one hand, A, thank God, because again, it's true. <laughs> giving us, and I mean that literally, thank God, because what do we deserve? We deserve death and, death and hell. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We're saved by what he has done. We're not saved because we've earned it. Um, but number two, there's also just this idea that God is allowing us to have free will to exercise our free will and to ex exercise the consequences both for ourselves and those and the consequences of our actions on others which is a a great responsibility. Uh chapter 22 
is the final speech of Eliphaz where he actually starts to accuse Job of specific sins. And so this is kind of what me and Aaron were talking about there, where this section of Eliphaz's last speech is is nuts. It's like, whoa. And so we'll get it. Because up until this point, the friends have not accused Job of anything specifically. And Zophar's last speech, I forgot where exactly it is, but Zophar hints at what they kind of think maybe Job could be doing. And then this speech, though, by Eliphaz is the only time that they straight up say, Here's the sin we think you've done. Uh, and so Eliphaz says this starting in verse five, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. And you have stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possesses, possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of waters of water covers you. And so what's Eliphaz accusing Job of here? He's accusing him of essentially using his wealth to oppress the poor. And which is, we know it's counter to Job's character because we talked to even Eliphaz in his first speech says that this is not true. Like he builds Job up by saying kind of the opposite of these things. But then here he's talking about how like, yeah, you've, uh, the naked, you've taken even more of their clothes away from them so that they're cold. When there's people who are hungry or they need something to drink, you haven't given them anything. You've taken the land and you've oppressed the people who live there. So basically he's just like straight up calling uh, like um, like Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, only worse is kind yeah. of what he's getting at there. But Mr. Potter really did those things. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Potter is the worst. The worst. He's worse than uh, Manasseh. <laughs> but <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no one's worse than Manasseh. Um, but it's uh, – he's – and this is what I think is interesting about it. I think Eliphaz is obviously lying here. And I think that he is getting caught up in the heat of the argument where he's getting fr- – and this is – I'm talking completely from Eliphaz's perspective here. He's getting so frustrated that Job will not listen to his advice and he will not listen to his clear way out. Like Eliphaz in his mind is like, I know exactly what the problem is. I know how you can solve it. Why are you being so pigheaded about this? Why can you not just listen to the facts? Because because it's so clear, you evil, wicked man, and then jumps into it. That, now again, that's kind of open-handed. That's how I read this section is that he's blowing up at Job and he's going way too far, obviously. And he's lying about Job because mm-hmm. he... I don't think Eliphaz believes these things to be true. and But again, that's completely open-handed. Who knows? Yeah, but, but that just, for me, only reinforces the challenge that I feel in cycle two. I, I don't have any, any qualms about cycle one. Their intentions were good, but then Job didn't respond. And then it's like, again, like I said, you, you sense this, this pride well up, this arrogance well yep. up and saying, I'm right, you're wrong. There's three of us against one, and yet you won't yield. And their intentions at that point shift from Job's best in mind to their their validation and affirmation that they are right. And that's where, for me, I, the tension exists mm-hmm. where I would – I again, this is where I'm at right now in this season of my life. Ten years from now, I can read this and God could totally change the tune and how I'm viewing it. I'm not jaded by any means. I don't have anybody – like sometimes our context influences how we read text, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just – I get this sense as I'm reading it. I'm like, man, these guys are jerks. They don't really care about Job. They care about their own their own authority, their own status, their own things like that. So that's where I wrestle with it. Well, and I – because I, I would agree with you. If it ended there, but then look at how Eliphaz ends his speech. And this is what I think is really confusing. It's This is in chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. 
Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands. Like that could be a Psalm. Like if you just put that in as Psalm 151, I'd be like, oh yeah, sure. I agree with all of that. And so that's what I think is so confusing about the yeah. friends is they have these weird, like El- like the, the first bit of Eliphaz's third speech is probably the most wicked thing that any of the friends say to Job, even worse than Zophar. And Zophar is the worst. Um, but then he ends it with this impassioned plea for Job to turn back to God, to repent. Um, you can see, again, he thinks Job is greedy because he says, if you lay your gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and your silver. So, so again, it's this, this portion here is not bad advice. It's misapplied advice because it's worthless to Job because this is not what Job struggles with. Um, but I think the fact that Eliphaz chooses to end his speech with this kind of shows where his heart is at, um, which to me makes it even more scary that I think his heart was in the right place for the most part, but he does these wicked things. Um, and I think I, I think you're absolutely right where I think he gets um, – I think all the friends want to be right. And I think we all str- – I don't know if we all struggle with that, but as not, for, not, me, for, not for, me at all. For no. me who loves to argue I, – I, Wait, I, what? There's definitely points where like I just want to be right. I want to win the argument. Um, and so I, I'm not saying like Eliphaz is like – obviously he's not perfect. Um, yeah. But I'm not even saying that his motivations are always pure the whole way through. Um, but I think that on the whole, if you look – if you kind of take Eliphaz as a whole character in the book, the scary thing about Eliphaz – is that his intentions were for the most part good, but he causes intense evil because he he didn't think through the evidence that was in front of well, him. Well, and I and I I agree that this is the way that he ends is is back to what he intended. I, I don't I don't disagree with that, but I would say it's a reaction and a response to rec, or it's a recognition of. Uh, whether it was a self-aware moment where he realized like I've only been in this to be right in these in the last few whatever speeches mm-hmm. and he comes back full circle back at the end of the day like there I, there's absolute humility in this in this section right right but I but it doesn't for me it doesn't dis- discredit the fact that I don't think his intentions were right the entire time mm-hmm. I think you can start off with your intentions then you get so caught up in your own ego your own pride I'm raising my hand as the greatest offender and then you come to a moment like oh man I missed it and my intentions were not good and coming back because i mean i i've lived it out I, I can think of one instance specifically that i'm like oh man like my intentions were not good and and i was saying the right things or i was saying things anyways all that to say it's it it's the best way for a life has to end absolutely but i i wrestle with the man i don't want to be like them at all i don't want to say the things they say like i don't i think they're just a bunch of jerks is what they are and trying to, to fight for their own, their own egos to pat themselves on the back and say, Hey, I'm right. So anyways, yeah. well, I, think, I think we agreed that 
it's his intentions start off well, they kind of take a nosedive and then they come back up at the end. So I, I, yeah, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, he there. ends well is what he does. But I would say he drifts and his his intentions shifted from Job's best to his own pride. That's fair. So. Yeah, I, I agree there. Okay, so chapters 23 and 24, kind of an odd pairing because in, true. in chapter 23 and the first half of 24, Job argues that God is seemingly apathetic to human wickedness or that God doesn't care about human wickedness. Um, he allows the wicked to get away with everything. However, in the second half of 24, Job shares about the judgment of the wicked, which seemingly contradicts himself a little bit. Um, so there's a few different ways that we could interpret this um, because they are pretty contradictory ideas that are happening there. I think number one, uh, we could view this as a poetic insert, which as we'll see in chapter 28 does seemingly happen where the author kind of inserts things. Uh, number two, some people say that this is Zophar's third speech and just got jumbled over the years, um, but this, that Zophar actually spoke in the third cycle and that this is Zophar's third speech. Um, or, and this is the one I kind of land on, I think this is just the reality of someone who's walking through intense grief and pain Yeah, is that they're not going to... They're not going to make coherent sense all the time. And we see this in all the psych. And if you took all of the speeches of Job, they contradict each other yeah. at different points. Um, Cause there's even points where Job will say with confidence, God has done this God, like God is doing this to me. And then later on, he'll say, if only I could appear before the Lord and explain what happened, then he would make it right. And what's the inference there or the implication there? Um, it is that God doesn't know what's happening to Job. And so I, I think the Bible or the, the book of Job specifically, but the Bible as a whole is giving us a very accurate picture of someone who is walking through intense trauma and intense grief. And when you, if you've talked with people who are walking through that, they're not going to be logically coherent because they're kind of just, everything's going on. Everything's going through their mind. I think that's what's happening with Job here. So for what it's worth, um, those are kind of the ways that we can interpret that. Chapter 25 uh, is the shortest chapter of Job, and this is Bildad's third, yeah, Bildad's third speech, and it's the last speech of the third cycle. Uh, and we're just going to read the whole thing because you know, fun times. Uh, then Bildad the Shuhites answered and said, "Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in His high heaven." True. Is there any number to His armies? Upon whom does His light not arise? True. Uh, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? I would argue that's true as well. Uh, behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. True. Uh, and then finally, verse six is how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Shots fired. I think that's where he goes a little bit too far here. <laughs> um, but I, I think what Bildad's doing here is basically contrasting the glory of God with the low, with the lowness of man, which I think on the whole is actually very correct. Like that is the right way we should think about it. I think where he goes a little bit too far, where he says, much less man who's a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Well, okay. Is the, um, is the gap between the holiness and the glory and the power of God, the same gap as basically between God and like the lowliest creatures of the earth. Yes, that is, that is accurate. Like we cannot, we can never hope to be as holy as God. We can obviously never hope to be as powerful as God. However, I think it's wrong to say that man is maggot and worm or humans, I guess we could say is, is are maggots and worms because God loves us and we're created in his image. And I think that's where Bildad is missing it here where yes, God is so much more holy. He is other. He is more powerful than we will ever be. However, that doesn't make us completely invaluable because God has declared us valuable. And and on the other side of Christ, we know that God um, loves us so much that he was willing to come and die for us. So yeah. that's an interesting thing there. But that was Bill Dad's whole speech. So there you go. 
Uh, Job ends the spike the cycles of his speeches with a reflection on, um, and these are all things that we've ca- talked about: the uselessness of his friends, <laughs> and then the unimaginable glory of God. And then I thought I love this section, and like, oh, I should have written down what chapter it was. I think it's in chapter twenty-seven, uh, where it's kind of a final victory over the Satan and. Job declares that he will hold fast to his integrity, even if he doesn't understand why God allowed all this to happen. And so even before we get to the wisdom poem and Job's final defense and uh, which are kind of like, I should, I guess I should phrase, there's a wisdom poem in chapter 28, and then there's three monologues that end the book. Yep. So there's the monologue of Job, which is chapters 29 through 32. And then I think, or 31. Uh, and then there's El- Elihu's monologue, which is actually four speeches, but no one else talks. So it's kind of a monologue there. Um, and then there's the great monologue of God himself who answers. And we'll talk about that next week. Um, it's tech- That one's technically two speeches because Job says Job says a little something in between. A so something, something. a little something, something, but we'll talk about that next week. Um, but here, before any of those great monologues start, Job has won the victory over Satan because what was Satan's thing? If you take away his, if you take away all of his blessings, he will curse God and he will die. Job has had all of that ripped away. And even more than that, he's had these three friends come and attack him viciously and jerks. Yep. And it convince him that he try and convince him that he is wicked. Um, and they're not trying to get him to curse God, but they're trying to basically get him to lie about what his stance is or what, who uh, the type of person that he is. And here in chapter 27, Job triumphs over the Satan there. Which that in and of itself is a whole different conversation. Job still stands with his integrity. Yep. And he doesn't yield to his friends to lie to get relief, right? Cause, right. Because that's part of the tension too, anyways. Well, well, yeah. One of the commentaries, I, I think it's multiple commentaries that I was reading on Job. Um, and I, I thought it was a brilliant point, is that the implicit temptation of the friends is, hey, you lost all of your things. Just and obviously this isn't the way they're phrasing it. Yeah. Just lie and say that you and rep- repent. Yeah, and repent of something and that be you restored. didn't. Yep. And repent of something you didn't do, and you'll get all your stuff back, Job. Doesn't so work that way. Even if Job took their advice, that means Satan wins. Well, because, it, exactly. It would have been unrighteous. Yep. Because what is because what does that prove? It proves that Job didn't care about living righteously. It proves that Job only wanted the blessings of God, and he was willing to give up his integrity. In order to get those blessings yes. back, uh, Job is so and that's layered. a significant point that that I think is worth remembering. I love this book so much. All right, well, we're gonna. Okay. Well, why don't you write a book about? It? Oh wait, you did. I did. Uh, we're gonna continue on here in a little bit, uh, but before we get moving with the next section of Job, we do want to take a, se- a moment to say, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five star review yet. That Please sure do. would that sure would be awesome. We love it, um, but it helps get the podcast out there to more people. So especially on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, those are kind of the two big places where a lot of people listen. Um, if you have been enjoying the show, please do take a second to leave us a review and also any feedback of how you think that we can continue to improve. We love reading that as well. And if you leave us a written review, we will read it on the air. And just we'll like, you out like Mike nine or five, nine, seven, two, five, seven. Ooh. Say that 10 times fast. Just kidding. Uh, but he said this, it's an entertaining way to learn the Bible. Uh, I started listening to y'all last summer. It makes me wonder if you're in the South. Cause you said y'all, uh, I grew up in Virginia. So y'all is a big staple there, but I grew uh, up here. It's true. Uh, So as you started listening to us last summer, and it's been a fun way to learn more about the Bible, I chuckle multiple times each episode, and I appreciate y'all creating an easy-to-digest walkthrough of the Word. Please keep it up. Uh, So, Mike, thank you for that review, man. I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for the shout-out. And I'm thankful that it's a good resource for uh, not just those who have 
read the Bible for a long period of time, but also for those newly newly joining the body of Christ. So uh, welcome to the family, man. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. Um, as Evan said, uh, I, there there is a wisdom poem. Uh, there is Job's final arguments that we're going to cover here in a minute before we uh, kind of get closer to, to wrapping up. This week's reading, uh, chapter 28, is that wisdom poem. Uh, it plays on the theme of the dialogues uh, regarding what is hidden and what is revealed. Uh, and so Job is having this reflective poetry poetic moment um, where he reflects on the value and the mystery and the place of wisdom. Uh, it's also structured around the question that is often repeated, where is wisdom found and where it can, uh, where, where is the place or where can we find understanding? Uh, and I'm going to read just a portion of this to you uh, because I do like the contrast that exists uh, in this first section of the, of the passage. Uh, but it says this in Job chapter 28 verses 1 through 13. Um, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the ground and copper is smelted from ore. A miner puts an end to the darkness. He probes the deepest recesses for one for ore in the gloomy darkness. He cuts a shaft far from human habitation in places unknown to those who walk above the ground, suspended far away from people, people the miners swing back and forth. Um, and it seems weird that he's saying these things, but he's he's literally comparing and contrasting that man has done a great job or has has pursued wealth, pursued items, pursued gold and and uh, different rocks of value. They pursued things they've done to the deepest, darkest places, but they still have yet to find wisdom. Where is wisdom? Where where is the place of understanding? Uh, he, and he shifts into verse five, said food may come from the earth, but below the surface of the earth is transformed by fire. Its rocks are a source of lapu lazuli, which is a, like a, a bluish rock. It's a bluish gemstone uh, containing flecks of gold. No bird or prey knows that path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts have never walked on it. No lion has ever prowled over it. The miner uses a flint tool and turns up from one uh, turns up ore from the roots of the mountains. He cuts out channels in the rocks. His eyes spot every treasure. He dams up the streams from flowing so that he may bring light to bring to light what is hidden. Uh, where can wisdom be found? This is the question that it, it's built upon. And where is understanding located? No one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. He continues on. And in essence, he just anchors this idea of wisdom and understanding are only found in God. It's only found in, in God's provision. God will, God will reveal understanding. He'll lead you to the path of wisdom. Uh, and so you see in this poem, he's comparing and contrasting all of these things that man has done, all of the, 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 the things that man is capable of doing. He still has no way to find what wisdom is apart from God. Um, only no, only God knows where to get it. It can't be bought by gold or silver or precious gems. Um, and he kind of has this poetic moment in the, in the middle of the book. Uh, we then see in chapter 29, 30 and 31, it's actually a summary of Job's defense. Um, I would call it kind of his closing arguments because yeah. he, he doesn't really get uh, much more opportunity to state a defense. I know that there's some significant moments with God at the end, but it's mostly God speaking. Yeah, Job speaks... In like a sentence or two yeah, later he just, on. He's just kind of shut up. But this uh, is it. Yeah. So this is kind of his last his last piece. We see chapter 29. It's kind of broken down where you see past, present, and future. Uh, so chapter 29 reflects on his life in the past where he laments uh, the loss and uh, when he uh, felt the presence and protection of God. He also had the respect of all those he lived among. Uh, and also it was, you know, his reflected also in his pursuit of righteousness and justice. So you see Job having this like reflection moment, comparing and, and almost, um, it's almost a flashback where you see him longing of the days before tr trouble hit, uh, where he's like, I, I had everything. I, God protected me. 
uh, I'm righteous in the midst of these things. Like I have the respect of my peers. And then coming out of the the uh, oracles, the the dialogues where all of these close friends, quote unquote, have just been attacking him left mm-hmm. and right. He laments cha- in chapter 29, reflects on his life in the past. He then well, I think, yeah, when I was writing, the thing that really stood out to me was, um, I don't know how I came across this poem, but I'm really glad. That was a weird flex for a second. When I was writing. No, when I was kidding. writing. Uh, no, when I was, when I was, yeah, when I was researching this, um, I came across the poem and like, this is like months before I did anything. I just immediately pinned it as like Job 29 referenced this when the time comes. Um, but it's a poem called Maud, Maud Mueller. And the... The, the the part of it, it says, um, God pity them both and pity us all who vainly the dreams of youth recall for of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. And I think it just so mm. perfectly says like, what is Job getting at here? Um, what might have been. Yeah. The way his life was going, the way he imagined his life was going to be. In chapter 29, I think he even references that he imagined dying surrounded by his children. Um, and now he knows that that will not be the case, yeah. kind of. Um, but th- those those children. It's true, yeah. Because uh, at and, this point, he hasn't been restored to anything. Right. It's, it's oh my gosh, it's so tragic. Um, and it even reminds me of, there's this movie I watched that was really interesting on Netflix. And it was, uh, what's it called? I, I, I don't remember the name of it. But it's a movie about... Um, the aftermath of 9/11, hmm. and it's the uh, the lawyers who are trying to assign um, basically what is the numeric value that we're going to give, yeah, to the to the victims' families of 9/11, and there's they're going through, and I think they give like the straight up interviews, like they're they're recreating them, um, and like one of the ladies, it just struck me as so powerful because you know there's all these like really. Um, well-spoken, like, here's what I've lost and all these different things. And one of the ladies, all she could get out is we had plans. And then she started crying. And and I think it just so encapsulates what's happening where you so think true. your life is going one way and in an instant that has changed forever. And so whether it's, you know, the poem I, I talked about or the, um, just the idea of like, we had plans. I think that's what Job is going through right now where he's seeing, he's remembering what his life was and what it could have been. Yep. Yep. And he's lamenting that. Yeah. Uh, and so then he he shifts into chapter 30. We'll see that he he then compares what could have been to what currently is. Um, he presents his circumstances and he, he reflects on the fact that they're filled with men who taunt him, uh, which I wonder who he's talking about. Um, he talks, Jerks. About, he talks about their actions against him uh, and even talks of his own internal conflict, his own internal affliction that he's 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 been wrestling with and he's having to deal with. Um, and then he, in, the, in a final section here in chapter 30, we'll see uh, that he references both his past acts of compassion and his present lack of hope or help. Um, and so he's, it's almost just like I've re, I've sowed this. I'm not reaping it. Um, and it's it's a lament. It's a it's a cry. And it's a. Uh, not a frustration. I'm sure there's frustration in it, but it it is this. This is what my life could have been. This is what my life currently is. I sowed in compassion, and I'm reaping in a lack of hope or help. Uh, and it goes kind of parallel with what you already said, even in regards to uh, though he slays me, I have hope, or he's the one slaying me, I have no hope. Um, he he's he's been wrestling with this for the bulk of the book that we've been able to be gl- getting glimpses in. Um, and then we see in chapter 31, um, he, he reflects on his desires, uh, desire to see the future. Uh, and what I mean by that is he, he wants to see the, the account of what is revealed. Like, show me what happened, and I want to see a vindication in the future. Um, 
Job will uh, again anchor back to the way he lived his life in pursuit of righteousness uh, because he believes that is how one should live before God, which is true. It's righteous. Like that was his the, the focus of his life. He lived in an honorable way. Um, and that he in 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 contrast, believing turning away from God has no benefit. And so he calls upon future future curses. Um if the things are not true, if the things that he's he's crying out to, if the things that he's establishing, his defense, he's saying, may future curses come upon me if these things are not proven to be true. Um, he affirms, and then he kind of goes into this um, checklist kind of op- item. He, he kind of takes time to then, it's like reflective questions, and he they're almost like assessing his character, assessing his righteousness. Um, he, he recommits and reaffirms um, his commitment to fidelity and questions, how could he break it? Uh, he opens up following sections with statement, conditional statements um, that he would say, my life doesn't line up to these things. And what, and this, those conditions are stealing or coveting. He's like, I can't, I, I didn't steal. I didn't covet. Uh, I didn't neglect of the needs of those both within my house and those without the house. Uh, I didn't trust in anything other than God. Uh, I didn't conceal hatred or sin. Uh, I didn't have improper oversight of the land. Um, and so he, do, he does this checklist item to, again, reestablish his righteousness. Because at the end, in this chapter, he's, he's literally saying, "Draw, out, show me the, the charges. Show me what I'm, I'm guilty of. And at the end of it, you'll find that he's looking uh, to give an account for them. He right. wants to just find it's, – it's this last plea of like, just tell me what I've done. Tell me what I'm accused of and let me revisit and, show, and give you an account in response to what, what I'm accused of. Uh, and we see, and that's kind of where chapter 38 wraps up. His defense kind of wraps up to this plea of just show me so I can respond. And we've seen that throughout the, his, all of his speeches and all of his responses. He just calls out for any kind of vindication. He calls out for any kind of op- opportunity to just be given the chance to show his righteousness, not in an arrogant way, but in a, a, a posture of humility saying, what have I done? Show me. Right. Well, I think it, it's very telling that what, what does Job do? He calls curses upon himself. He's like, yes. if you can prove that this happened, then so be it. Let this happen to me. And so he's he's not trying to get out of it and kind of lie his way through it. And and like you said, I think it's really important to say this is these are not arrogant statements by Job because he is right. <laughs> like Job is saying that I have not done these things that you were saying that I've done. So really important important part there. Um, as we get into chapter thirty two, we are introduced to the most controversial character Ooh. in Job, and that is of course I don't know why I said of course that is Elihu. So. What you mean? You didn't know? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, like, the weird thing with Elihu is if you read through the commentaries, if you read through study bibles, um, they are basically split 50-50 on whether or not Elihu is a fourth friend who is like basically just as bad as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, or if he's kind of like a John the Baptist type character who is preparing the way for Yahweh's speech at the end. Hmm. Um, I land in camp too. Um, yes. We've talked about this like every year in the podcast, so I, I think I don't have to belabor this a large amount. Although I guess if you're new, like it's good to know. Yeah. Um, the reason I land in camp two is because you, when we'll talk about why his speeches are a little bit different here in a little bit as we look at their structure. Um, but also at the end of the book, Yahweh rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far specifically. Spoiler. He does. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he does not rebuke Elihu. And so I think right there, what you're seeing. Yeah, right there. I think what you're seeing is that um, – Either Elihu just like booked it and ran away and wasn't around anymore, yeah. which seems pretty nuts, um, or it's that God did not choose to rebuke yeah. Elihu for what he said. Well, and I'll be honest with you, it's, it was fun reading 
this year specifically, it was fun reading again Elihu's speech. As I know what's coming at the end of Job, mm-hmm. which obviously I've known for a while, but as I've known what's coming, it's it was really interesting reading again and seeing like, oh, look, it's like almost like a, okay, God, I'm setting you up. Right. Putting the ball on the tee for you. Just knock it out of the park, bro. Whatever you need to do. Um, but it was interesting. And so so I find myself intrigued to to see that kind of piece fit my, a little bit more clearly. I think my my favorite part of Job is is Yahweh's speeches at the end. My second favorite is the final speech of Elihu, which I think we'll talk about this next week. You can read it a certain way, which the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced this is the correct way to read it. And it just becomes so cinematic and cool <laughs> if you do. But that's a yeah, it's a teaser for next week. We'll we'll talk so about stay that. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. Uh, all right. So in chapter 32, we're introduced to Elihu and this is what we're told about him. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the, of, uh, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with oh. anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. You know, and I'm starting to think that Elihu burned with anger. He might have been a little <laughs> I'm hothead. St- I'm starting to think he's a little mad. Um, and here's the thing. Elihu, while I do think he's a good uh, good person is a weird way to phrase that, but I, I think he's in the right with a lot of what he says. Um, he's not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he is I think he is arrogant. I think he's kind of coming at this with like, okay, dude, chill out a little bit here. His, his age is showing. Yeah. He's a – yeah. Well, I guess that's that's worth mentioning. And he talks about it here. He is certainly the youngest member of the group. Um, and so that's why he wouldn't even speak in the cycles yeah. where you have Eliphaz build up so far. Yep. He waited until they were completely done because that was the right thing for a, the, a youth to do. Um, and then he jumps in. And but, in a normal situation, if if there would have been resolution to the dialogues, it would have been done. Right. You wouldn't have had any place to say anything. But because there was no resolution, because there was still I'm righteous, no, you're not righteous, and that was it. Elihu then was able to jump in and say his piece. And in that way, Elihu is almost like a uh, an audience character where like, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It can't end there. Hold on. And then he jumps in. Wait a I, I minute. think that kind of speaks for a lot of the audience of like, if Job ended at the end of chapter 31, we, we, we would all be like, wait, hold on, hold on. Well, yeah. <laughs> we can't just We'd let be scratching it. our heads and confused. Um, so anyways, he spends all of chapter 32 and the first seven verses of chapter 33 defending the his right to speak, which is just like, dude, just get to the point. Like I've been, there's been a few times and this is, this is a real character defect of mine. Um, but like, I've been talking with someone and like, I literally will say like, dude, just get to the point. Like, holy cow. And then it's immediately followed with Ashley kicking me in the shin. And good being, job, Ashley. Yeah, good job. Uh, Cause I don't need to be a jerk like that. But like, I get, fr- I get, I get frustrated reading these chapters cause it's literally just him being like, and here's why I should be able to speak like, dude, okay. Just say what you're gonna say, man. Like you don't have to keep going on about this. So yeah, it's 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 it, it is what it is. One of my favorite things is there's a uh, um there's a verse I forgot somewhere where but Elihu talks about how he is a man of many words, and then one of the commentaries, the only note on that verse is no one would dispute that. <laughs> so there you go. Um, after we get into after this, we get into his first speech, uh, which follows a very different format from that of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, So here's what I think makes Elihu very different. What he does in his speeches is he quotes Job, and then he offers a rebuttal. 
Um, and so what, what Elihu does that's different is, you know, Eliphaz built on Zophar are essentially saying, oh, Job, you're just a windbag. Here's the truth. What Elihu does is he takes things that Job has already said and then he rebutes, rebutes them, rebuttals them. I, I should like have rebukes. I don't know. Oh my gosh. That was rebuttals. Oh, like, pe- right, I think Kathy and Josh will back me on this one. Rebuttals. Pe- people who were listening were like, wow, Evan has a good point. And then I just ruined all of that good faith with that, with that little aside. Um, but anyway, yeah. Right, so Elihu uh, rebuttals them here. Rebuttals what Job says. Um, and then he uses. I think now that I think about it, I think that. It is wrong. Is it? I don't oh, I, think no. Kathy, I think Kathy and everyone, Josh are going to call Everyone thinks out on I'm it. stupid. Because I think I've used that word and they all. All the listeners were losing him by the second. They're like, who is this idiot it's who doesn't know the right word? My, I got past my portion. Anyway. Okay. So to put it simply, Elihu. Rebuts. Is it rebuts? Rebuts? I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, to put it simply, Elihu accuses Job of saying that God has made an enemy of him despite being pure and clean. So Job is saying that I am blameless and upright and yet God has made, chosen to make me his enemy, um, which is true. That is that is what Job has been arguing. Um, and then Elihu uses, remember, what, what arguments do the friend use, especially in the second cycle? It's, oh, Job, look at the wicked man. Does that sound familiar? So Elihu uses a similar tact, but listen to how it's different here. Uh, so this is in chapter 33. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite, the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into a pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth and let him return to it the days of youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right. And it was not repaid me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. And so I'm thinking of Parks and Rec with the pit a bunch here. But oh, hey, OG Chris Pratt. It's a good time. Um, so here, but again, what does Elihu do here? He's talking about a man who's in pain, continual strife in his, bo- in his bones, and he, he can't eat. He's completely lost his appetite. So again, you have this idea of, hey, Joe, does that sound familiar? But instead of saying, this is the fate of the wicked man, the man who has sinned horribly, what does he do? He says that there is hope that for that person to be made whole again. Um, and I love how we talked about with I Know My Redeemer Lives, like Job kind of scratching at the gospel. This is like, this is this is bordering on a Christophany. It's not. But just like, what does Elihu imagine happening here? He's like, yeah, what if there was like an angel, like a mediator of some kind to stand between you and God (laughs) who would go down and find you because he found the ransom that needed to be paid for you. Like, Job, wouldn't that be super cool? Like, I feel like in this moment, this is like actual divine revelation that God is giving Elihu where he's like, hey, you're real close there, bud. It's not an angel. It's me. They're not, I'm not going to find a ransom. I'm going to be the ransom, but I, I don't. I don't know. I I love how this looks forward to uh, to Christ. I, I think it's a be- absolutely beautiful section. Um, rebuttals is a word, by the way. Rebuttals, yes. It's, it's rebuttaling. That's what it was. That I rebuttaling's say. not yeah. a word. Yes. Okay. So. 
All right. Uh, thank you, Kathy, for the one. I texted her in the middle of our podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Rebuttals is good. We didn't lose our listeners. We're smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in chapter 34, uh, we see Elihu's second speech, and this time he accuses Job of claiming to uh, be suffering wrongly. Um, which, I mean, that's irrefutable. That is what Job is claiming because what's Job wanting to do? He wants to stand before God and present his case. And then his hope is that God would be like, oh, dude, you're right. I'm sorry. Like, I, my bad, Job. My bad. We're st- stop it right now. Yeah. Like, that's kind of like, obviously, that's a very flippant way of saying it. But that's kind of what Job is hoping for here. Um, Elihu's rebuttal here is to say that it is wrong for us to say that God has done wrong. And then he describes God's ultimate power, ultimate knowledge, and he calls Job to repent. But again, notice the difference between Elihu's call for Job to repent and Eliphaz's, and the other friends have one too. Um, But I I always contrast Elihu with Eliphaz mostly, um, with Eliphaz's call to repent. So this is in chapter 34, starting in verse 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayable to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, pay attention to this verse, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without insight. That's going to come back. (laughs) Uh, In verse 36, would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin and he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Verse 36. Okay. Think about this for a second. I need to add this into the manuscript because I don't think I wrote this, but this just occurred to me in the moment. Um, What does Elihu say here? Because he answers like wicked men. What did Job say to his wife when she was telling him? When she was telling him to curse God and die, not that she's a fool. You he speak said, like wicked. You're God. speaking like a fool. And what does Elihu tell him here? You're not a wicked man, but you're speaking like a wicked man would speak. That's a big deal. That's a powerful statement, and it also shows where Elihu's head is at. He's not accusing Job of being what the friends are accusing of, but he's accusing him of speaking like a wicked man would speak. And we'll see. You know, next week let's we'll see what Job actually ends up repenting of, and we'll see how right Elihu is here. Uh, but that wraps it up for our discussion of Job this week, which leads us to our application section. Aaron, what did we learn today? I think the easy, uh, I think an e- easy application for for my portion, I guess, if you will. Uh, it, ju- it just comes out of Romans 28, 28. Not Romans, wow. It, it comes out of Job 28, 28. I was like, Romans 28? Uh, let's go wow. to a different book entirely. No, but I just think, I mean, I think the basic easy application is the idea of the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And I love the, I love the way that the CSB writes it. Um, but like, that is wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and to turn from evil is understanding uh, because they go hand in hand. Um, but really even more like than that, I, I kind of go back to what Job was saying in chapter 31 as he was, in essence, making this checklist. I wrote, I remember writing in my Bible as I was reading it. Um, I highlighted just the numbers 31 because I didn't want to highlight the whole chapter because it's like 40 verses. Um, and not that I couldn't have, but it just saved me a little bit of time. Sure, sure. Um, but it, it, and I, and I copied and pasted in my notes, not because I want to read it, but because, but because it, it, it has a ton of questions and, and these questions I thought, and I remember writing, like, it's an incredible filter and questions we should be asking as followers of Christ today. Like these questions are so important and they're so good uh, that I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard them ever referenced in a message before. I definitely have never preached them in a message. Um, but it starts off in verse one, like I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? 
And the, like the question is like, am I looking at other women? Am I looking at a young, like, am I, am, did I make a covenant with my eyes? Do I, if I want to live righteously, I just think he's got so many different questions within these, these 40 verses that it, that it's really important and applicable for us today. Like verse 14, what could I do when God stands up to judge? How should I answer him when he calls me to account? Like, did, what would be my response to that question? Um, did the, and so I just think that there's a ton of questions that are worth asking. It talks about coveting. It talks about stealing. Like I've already met, uh, referenced earlier uh, as I was recapping. But I just thought that these questions, you want to talk about easy application. It's it's literally having a conversation through Job chapter 31. And, and asking these questions as if I'm asking them myself. Verse 29, I'll finish with this one. Have I rejoiced over my enemy's distress or become excited when trouble came his way? Like that question, like if I want to live righteously and I want to honor God with my life today, that question in, in verse 29, have I rejoiced over it in, yep. in enemy's distress? What about across the political aisle or across the church, across the street or the pastor or that neighbor or my family member? Like have I celebrated when trouble came their way? Like it's it's one of those, I think, questions that's really the chapter's chock full of them, but it's really important. I think it's an easy application for us, practically speaking, that I think we can grab some a hold of some of these questions and allow the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts to free responses. No, that's a great that's a great point. <laughs> looking at looking at like I I haven't thought about that before, but yeah, looking at those as questions that we ask ourselves. I think it's really powerful. Uh, for me, my big thing was Elihu's first speech and talking about the idea of, and we didn't hit this, I guess, a lot in the um, Bible study portion, but Elihu's argument is basically that in the midst of suffering. God can be speaking to us and that suffering doesn't have to just be punitive, which is what all of the friends, including Job, they're all thinking that this suffering that Job is walking through is punishment for something. Um, the friends think it's rightful punishing and Job thinks it's wrongful punishment, but they both, they all think it's punishment. Um, Elihu comes forward and says, have you ever considered what God could be teaching you through the suffering? Um, and I think that is such an important biblical yeah, question that comes really up. Good all the time in the New Testament. And I, I think for me, like it's easy, right? Like in the moments of frustration, in the moments where I'm just getting so angry about something that's going on or something that's not getting resolved, do I stop and think to myself, what could God be teaching me in the midst of this? I think it's a really powerful question for us to ask ourselves. So no, short, a short application, but that's the one that I thought of this week. Um, but before we wrap up, we do have one final segment today. And that is, of course, our question that came in this week. Okay, so really good question, actually. Uh, and I, I was it was funny because when we were talking about the story of Joseph and you said something about like, it's a bummer we can't read all of the blessings of Jacob upon it with his sons because they're really interesting. And I was like, ah, that is that is a bummer because they are really interesting. Well, we got a question about them. So we're going to go, we're going to go back to the blessings. Um, it says, hello, my question is in Genesis 49, 9 through 12, the blessing of Judah, is this considered a messianic prophecy? If I were reading too much into it, the reference on the donkey's colt stands out, as does a sort of reference to the communion with the blood of grapes. But the bit I don't really appreciate is who is Shiloh? Is that intended as a reference to Christ? Uh, and so let's read uh, what we're talking about here. So this is Genesis chapter 49. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And so... 
already this is odd because again, we talked about it, right? Judah's the fourthborn son. So he's receiving the blessing that Reuben theoretically should have received. Uh, Judah is a lion's cub. That's going to come up. Uh, from, pray, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed up his garments in wine and his uh, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Um, short answer: Yes, yeah. This is looking for so it's it's talking about um, obviously like some of the things that some of the things that. Jacob says about his sons, they don't come true for the sons as people. They come true for the sons as nations mm-hmm. or tribes is the yeah. better word, right? And so some of this is about Judah the man. Most of it is about Judah the tribe. And so we know who comes from the tribe of Judah. Jesus. A little guy named Jesus or Yeshua or Jesus, you know. Um, but yeah, Jesus is in the tribe of Judah. And so when it talks about the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I mean, A, that's looking forward to the monarchy, right? Because other than Saul, all of the kings of, of Judah, <laughs> of uh, all of the kings in Jerusalem are of the tribe of Judah. And then there's the greater king who is above all other kings who will eventually come from that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, the donkey's colt, I think the more and more I do biblical interpretation for finding Christ in the Old Testament, the more I, I'm very liberal with it, I guess. And that maybe that's the wrong word, but I, I, I tend to see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's kind of the way you read it in the New Testament. When Paul and Peter and Matthew and John yeah. are writing about seeing Christ in the New Testament, it's literally just like, and yep, this right here, this is looking forward to it. So yeah, I do think like the donkey's colt, I think that's obvious. It's not as um, as clear as some of the other prophecies yeah, will be, but I think it is something where on the other side of Christ, we can look at this and, and realize, oh, that was pointing forward. Yep. Uh, Another couple of questions here. Also for the blessing of Levi to not include God's soul entering their council. It's interesting how they became whitewashed walls by Jesus' time. Uh, that one I think is a, a quick misunderstanding. So the, here's the blessing here. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Um, and so remember, Simeon and Levi are the two sons who really went after Shechem, who yep. is the man who um, who raped their sister Dinah, and they killed him, killed his father, and pillaged the whole Which city. Which is why Ephraim and Manasseh were taken as adopted by Isaac. And they were, in essence, he took them as his two sons. Isaac or Jake, Jacob. Jacob, whatever. Yeah, whatever I, dad it was. One of those patriarchs. Yeah, they're all the same. Yeah. So he says, let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, let my glory not be joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they uh, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Uh, so there, that's not God saying, I will not come into their counsel. That's Jacob basically distancing yeah. himself. Jacob saying that I don't want to be thought of as associated with these sons, which mm-hmm. is which is a bummer. Um, and then also, it's really interesting, the very end of it there, it says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Those are the two tribes that don't have clear borders. So yep. Le- the Levites, because they don't have any land, because they're the, their inheritance is the priesthood. And then the Simeonites, I don't know how you call, call them, I guess Simeonites, yeah. Um, all we know about them is that they're within the borders of Judah. So, but they don't have like, if you look at like a map of all of the tribes. Yeah, they don't have a specific plot. Yeah, you see clear lines. And then Sim- the, the tribe of Simeon is just like a circle somewhere in Judah. It's like, yeah. Probably in that there. area. Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, and then the final one was, 
Also, Ephraim and Manasseh were half Egyptian and they're kids uh, of star Egyptian cultures. So basically, like, yeah, Joseph's a pretty popular Egyptian and Ephraim and Manasseh are half Egyptian. And it says, had they not affiliated themselves with Jacob's blessing, would they have been better off? Um, and obviously that's kind of said tongue in cheek because, you know, they're the tribes of Israel. But yeah. it is kind of it is kind of interesting to think about. Like they are definitely considered um, Israelites. They're not considered Egyptians because yeah. a, a few a – little. we don't know how long later, but – we know that a Pharaoh rises who does not know Joseph and yeah. what happens is Joseph's sons, their own tribes. So the, this tribe has Egyptian blood in them um, and they're still enslaved. So, yeah. But I think, that, I think that goes back to the, like the, the father's influence and the father's lineage is what they take on. So even though their mom is Egyptian, Joseph is not. That's a so, good point. So his, his heritage, their heritage aligns with the fathers, not with the mothers. So no, ex- excellent point there for sure. All right. Well, that wraps. Yeah. yeah, great. Great. And we, got, and we got to review the blessings a little bit. Oh, man. All right. Well, that does actually wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media page. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to consider supporting the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There is a link in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.